0: If you have your Bibles, please open them to Joel chapter 1, and we're going to start with verse 5. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number, its teeth Are lions' teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley. Because the harvest of the field has perished, the vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of man. May God bless the reading of his word. So Joel is describing what's happening around him. And if you notice, even from the verses we've read without even going over them yet, it's pretty dark stuff. It's hard things. Um, One would even say maybe a little depressing at a few moments. And it's with this when he's surveying all of this, that Joel prophesies about it. And so let's see what he has to say. Verse 5, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Now at this point, Joel calls on a response from the people. He begins with the drunkards, telling them to awake and to weep. It is interesting that he calls upon these individuals first, since they would be the ones most unaware of the devastation occurring. Thus he continues by telling the drinkers of wine to wail. But the question remains, why? Why should they wail? The answer is that the wine which they have been drinking is cut off from their mouths. In this way, it is a curse type, since wine or fruit of the vine is considered a blessing. Thus, the blessing which they have been given, has been taken away from them. Now verses 6 and 7. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Now the focus of the lament comes into view. Whereas previously there was a discussion of locusts, now we have a nation which has come up against the land. We notice that it is not just any land, but it is my land. That is, the land of the Lord. While God may have blessed the people of Israel with the land, in the end it still belongs to God himself. Still, the problem is that this nation which has come up against the land is vast, it's powerful, and beyond number, similar to a locust swarm. Joel continues by describing its strength in terms of a lion and a lioness's, by describing the lion's teeth and the lioness's fangs, and understanding that we still even today have when we think of lions and their strength. This army has laid waste to the vine and splintered the fig tree. Again, the emphasis is that it is my vine and my fig tree. The devastation of the work which went into the agriculture is significant. They have utterly destroyed any work of the people, and as such causes the blessings on the people to subside in two ways. The first is their own blessing from having the vine and the fig themselves, and then the second is economically. I mean, this is a total devastation on the land and on the people. Verse 8, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The people overall are called to lament. The lament is a great one, for it concerns a young woman who is betrothed, losing her bridegroom before they were married. Some may wonder why she is called a virgin while clearly having a bridegroom. And the reason for this is that betrothals in ancient Israel preceded the wedding ceremony. Thus, we consider the great sorrow that would come from a situation. It makes sense that the young woman will be wearing sackcloth, for the sackcloth indicates mourning, and remember, um, this happened in Ruth. Thus, they are to mourn this as well, mourn what they have lost, and mourn, perhaps, what they will still lose. Now verse 9, The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. There's a slight shift of focus of the lament as the priests are called to mourn. What is it that they are mourning? The fact that there is nothing left for a grain and a drink offering to be offered at the temple. Thus, the normal temple practices and rites are being broken because of the devastation. That is indeed where it leads, for the fields are destroyed, and even the ground itself mourns because of how devastating the destruction has been. The wine is drying up, the oil dissipates. Thus, the blessings of the land are not to be found, and the people will be without. Ultimately, all this leads us to remember that these are curses from the law for disobedience, and we see this especially in Deuteronomy 28. This agricultural desolation, which are occurring because of their unfaithfulness to the law, that's why. Though an enemy has invaded the land, the ultimate truth is that the people of Israel are being punished for breaking the law. Or in this case, the people of Judah, I should say. Verses 11 and 12. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine-dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Verse 11 now shifts focus to the tillers of the soil and the vine-dressers. The first of these represents all the laborers of the land, whereas the vine dressers represent those who specifically deal with the fruit of the vine. Ultimately, all those who are involved in agriculture can feel shame and mourn over the harvest which has been made desolate. The wheat, the barley, in fact, all the harvest has perished. In verse 12, we see how badly the effects have been. But before that, we also notice that this agricultural problem has come from a drought, as Joel says, that these things have dried up. Such a drought is, again, a curse for disobedience. But what dries up? Joel mentions first um, the vine, which represents that which makes wine. Then he speaks of the fig, pomegranate, palm, and apple trees. Those five different kinds, special kinds of trees are mentioned as suffering because of this drought. Though he ultimately ends up saying, even though, that all the trees of the field are dried up. Thus we see the effects of this drought on the land, but even so there is an effect on the people. Just as these fruit trees and the vine are unable to produce their own crops, so it is that the children of man are unable to produce their own fruit, which is gladness. Thus, Joel brings this very personal element to the devastation which is occurring in the land. Now, the main point of these verses are to focus on two events which have taken place and should also cause us to realize the reason for these events. Now, the reason for these events is that the disobedience of the people um, through their unfaithfulness to the law, that's the reason for it. Now, the events themselves occur... Um, because of their unfaithfulness and disobedience, is an invading army and agricultural destitution. Ultimately, we find a human element to this, as Joel describes to people as trees, who are unable to bear the fruit of gladness or joy in such a desolation. Now, let's lead just to a few application points. And I'm thinking, maybe some of you are thinking, how are you going to get applications out of this one? I mean, last week, that was hard enough with locusts. Um, but how are we going to do it when it 's talking about so much devastation and destruction? well let 's look at it. Within the text we read today or we read today, we find the call for the people to lament. They are to lament many things which focus on the devastation which has occurred on the land. And this, I think, is an important point for us to read about. It is important to see that to lament is something which the people were often called to do. As we saw in the text, the events which were occurring before them were what leads them to lament. But the question remains, what exactly is a lament? Well, a lament is to show grief, sorrow, or even shame. It could be simply felt, but it could also be expressed through song or prose. When put this way, one can imagine the passing of a loved one as a time when we lament. Or if some kind of calamity hits us personally we can express lamentations but have you ever noticed that within american christianity there's a trend not to lament have you ever noticed how often it is that people try to discourage us from lamenting whether they realize it or not uh, just recently i came across a facebook post and it said if you're not having fun and you need to find out then you need to find out where you left jesus And I thought to myself, really? Is Jesus all about fun? Are we not allowed to grieve at times? Then people will say, but you know the end of the story. You know Christ has won. Therefore, you should not have any sorrow or pain or have moments of grief. Indeed. I don't know about you, but I am certain that Christ has won. I know that through Christ, I too will achieve victory in life over death. It is certainly because of him that that is the case. However, knowing the end of the story doesn't necessarily mean that in this life, I or you or we together will not experience moments of sorrow and grief. I think the best example of this is Jesus himself. Jesus certainly knew the end of the story. He knew the end result. He knew that being faithful in obedience to his Father would mean victory. But he was still filled with sorrow over what was going to occur. He still had dread. He still recognized that if there was another possible way, he would have taken it if it would bring about the same result of salvation and redemption. There was not another way, there was only one way, and that was to the cross, to death. He was resolute when the answer had been given, but he still had sorrow in the moments before. We can also think of others. We can think of Paul, classically in 2 Corinthians, when he he and others with him despaired of life itself because of the situation they were in. Does that make them failures at being Christian for being in such a time of persecution and sorrow? No. No. It taught them to cling more to Christ even in their sorrow. And in doing so, Christ is the one who is able to bring them out in peace. Some will say, but aha! Paul learned his lesson. Indeed. But so too we must learn the lesson only when we are in that place where we are experiencing the pain. For it is only in that pain that such a lesson can be learned. Christianity is does not need to be dreary all the time. There are those who believe it must be completely without fun. Yet we know that that is not the case either. There are times when we can have a great amount of fun in fellowship with one another, or in the presence of God when we are at peace and simply enjoying knowing our God. In all truth, Christianity is much fun when we really consider it, and there is much joy for Christianity And that gives us great peace. However, the simple truth is, there are also moments of sorrow in our lives. Too often we can feel humiliated to share our sorrow, or to acknowledge our pain. But that would be just as against Christianity, as it would be to not acknowledge that there is true joy in Christ. We can lament, and we should lament, God wants us to be redeemed humans who experience pain and who come to him in our sorrows, learning to lean ever more on his grace and peace during these times. It should be of no surprise to us when we are told to mourn with those who mourn or weep with those who weep. Sorrow, pain, these experiences are going to happen in this life. It would be wrong for us to stifle how we feel for the sake of a false joy. A joy that we may paint on our faces, but does not really exist. No, instead we should be willing to be open with one another, honest about what we are going through, knowing we have Christ who will overcome these things, and knowing Christ gave us each other for the moments of hardships. So no matter what the popular Christianity says know that it's okay to lament. If you feel the need to lament, do it. Pray to God in lamentations if that w- that's what you're going through. When you lose a loved one or when life is hard, lament. If others are in sorrow, lament with them. Know that God is capable of handling all of our sorrows. Even the sorrow that we do not understand... He has died on the cross to experience our lamentations with us. He is with us in our sorrow. And though it may take time, He will, He has promised, to lead us out of our lamentations of song, bringing us into songs of praise. So go ahead and lament if you need to. The second application I think we can come to is Awake. In today's text, we also saw the need for people to awaken. In particular, Joel focuses on those who are drunkards and those who are drinkers of wine. We saw how there is a twist of irony in this, since the drunkards and those who drink wine would be, honestly, those who are most unaware of their surroundings. Instead, it is a recognition, or actually, and specifically when it comes to destruction which is occurring, they would be the least likely. I mean, we've all known drunkards in our lives who just get concussed and they have no idea what's going on around them. Yet there is another element which should be recognized and that is how they are to awake and recognize that the blessing is no longer available. Within the law, the fruit of the vine was considered to be a blessing on the people. Granted, that does not mean that the people should become drunkards. Instead, it is a recognition that the, when they had this blessing, um, it was a blessing And now, that blessing is gone. This is something which is somewhat serious for our own time. Perhaps it is time for us to use this same slogan within American Christianity, that it is time for us all to awake to the devastation which we see around us. For American Christianity as a whole, it is in a great deal of disarray. It is as though the enemy has surrounded us, All the while we've been asleep, enjoying the blessings which have been bestowed upon us. So here's the question. Are we in any better position than the drunkards? Is it possible that we have feasted so greatly on the blessings that we have forgotten that we have lost something along the way? Is it possible that we were behind our castle walls... Not only was the world slowly being eaten away by darkness, but that our own light was dimmed and unable to produce any change outside of those who were within. Now some might be thinking I'm talking about social justice. That there, we were too busy focusing on ourselves and not enough on the suffering of those outside. And while there was certainly a time when that did occur, the truth is American Christianity, if you've noticed it, has shifted. Um, and much of that has shifted so much that that's all we see in many congregations. Um, this has occurred in two ways. The first is that many congregations only focus on social justice, neglecting the gospel and all the doctrines which make Christians Christian. And the second are those congregations who do practice social justice in some way, um, such as modern missions trips, but forget we are called in our missions to make disciples, teaching them all that Christ has commanded. Thus, their mission trips end up being little more than making those who um, they go to more comfortable on their road to hell, and little more for the individuals who go than mere experiences they once had and now forget. So no. No. We do not need to wake up from our slumber and start being more social justice oriented. Um, In fact, we need to revamp our social justice by coupling it with the actual gospel and not some figment of the gospel. No. We need to wake up from our slumber and realize that there is a great deal we have lost already. We need to awake from our slumber and recognize that we have been led into a false sense of peace and security in this place in America. We have been led to be congregations filled with congregants who have been sedated for far too long. How have we been sedated? An important place is from the pulpit. Consider the question of the preaching pastor. If a poll was taken to decide what was the most important aspect of preaching, it would not surprise me to learn that relatability was the most important aspect of a sermon. We want stories. We want to be told what we already know. We want to be encouraged, but we certainly do not want to be challenged too much. We don't want our pastors to be academic. We don't want them to use theology or philosophy. We want them to preach something nice and easy. Now, what becomes of a congregation who has a pastor who preaches in such a way? the congregation becomes sedated. There is no growth for the people who hear the same thing over and over and over again. There is no growth for the congregation who is not challenged. There is no growth for a congregation who is not learning theology. There is no growth when a pastor is only preaching what they want rather than what the scriptures teach. Now, who is to blame for this? Two groups. The first... Our pastors who went to seminary had their preaching class, and preaching experts tell them that is what we need to preach in order to relate to our congregations. It is in seminary and in their training that they are told don't be too theological. Your people will not understand it, they will not relate. How condescending (laughs) we are toward our own sheep. Thus the pastors who have accepted this, accepted the simple message, the easy sermons, the silly illustrations, those who were not willing to take the harder course to train the minds of their congregation, such pastors take some of the blame. The second is the congregation itself, those who allow itself to be led into this state the congregations which allow themselves to be at ease, drinking down the wine of their own choice of blessing, never to be challenged, never to grow in knowledge, content to be exactly where they are. What would Joel say to us in our American Christianity? Awake! Mourn! Lament! The harvest has been destroyed by the enemy while you were asleep. Wake up. See the devastation and mourn. See what has happened to you while you and your leaders have been lax. The world rejects your message because you've allowed yourself not to grow in knowledge of it. Your children and grandchildren fall for philosophies and beliefs contrary to Christ because you want to be content rather than to gain more knowledge. The problem with American Christianity has not been the world of darkness. The church has always been fighting the darkness. No, the problem with American Christianity is that it is American Christianity. That it reflects the culture of contentment, more so than it does the Christian faith presented in the scriptures. Alas, mourn. This Christianity has managed to make Karl Marx a prophet when he said De religion is das opium desvocus Religion is the opiate for the masses. We point the finger at the world when in fact we've been the disciples who have fallen asleep in the garden. We were told to keep watch, to wait, to pray, to seek guidance. And instead we fell asleep. When will this cursed sleep be over? When will our drunkenness fade? When will we again know all the fruits of this beautiful religion of Christianity? When will we love God with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength? The time is upon us. It is time for us to awake It is time for us to rise up, O sleeper. The war has been waging, and it is time for us to fight the battle, to see the devastation, to mourn over it, and to begin to rebuild that which we have lost, to use our minds again, to be transformed by the power of God himself, to desire to experience our God more and more, but also and equally to know him more and more. As long as the prophet speaks, the more we need to recognize he is calling to us. Just as they were called to awake to recognize the devastation, so too must we awake from our own slumber and make the necessary changes to remain awake. It is never too late to wake up. It is never too late for us to stand against the darkness and to be more than we are Currently, through Christ. So don't settle for being appeased. Don't settle for being complacent. Don't settle for the condescension which comes from those who are more educated and who believe you can't possibly learn anything. Instead, let's learn again. Let's seek knowledge and wisdom and seek truth together. Let's be willing to be challenged and embrace the idea of the awakening of our minds, all of our lives even, to Christ. The world thinks that we are sedated people and always will be. Well, let's show the world that we're waking up and that we won't allow ourselves to fall asleep any longer. Admittedly, this is the harder course But as Christ said, the way is narrow and the gate is small, and it is so for a reason. Arise, awake, let us go through that narrow gate and walk down the narrow road together, no longer sleeping, but alert and ready for this battle against darkness and devastation before us, knowing that if we are awake, we awake to a new dawn which wields the eternal light of Christ. There are many glorious things to consider from all of this. The first is that we are able to awake at all. The second is that Christ is victorious. The simple truth is, though the darkness is here, and we see it more day by day, we can be sure that Christ has conquered. We are not the disciples who see their Lord go to the cross, seeing darkness won, and then have no hope. No, we are the disciples who have fallen asleep and awake to a new dawn after the cross, after the resurrection. As such, we have hope even in such times. We have hope that our God can redeem all things, even the dark times, for his glory. Praise God, for we are able to partake of this glory by his grace. This gospel begins with our origins. God created the cosmos, the universe, by the power of his word. Last of all, he created humanity to bear his image. It is because of this that we share the attributes with God, though not infinitely. Because God is a God of love, reason, knows, can be known, has personhood, shows chesed, has morality, we do as well. It is here that we find the sanctity and dignity and worth to all human life. Yet, like God, we are also able to choose. We could choose obedience and follow God into life, or disobedience and follow sin into death. Humanity made the latter choice and has made that choice ever since. And because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world are broken. It is through our sin that we accrue a great moral guilt before God, which makes us worthy of judgment. God did not leave us in this state forever, and said he sent his light and his word into the world, and that was his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is through him we are healed of our wounds. It is through him we find redemption from our sin and from the righteous judgment of God. Christ, by his propitiation, expiates our sin. His victory over death becomes our victory over death. And we are given his spirit, which guides our steps every day. All that is required of us is two things. The first is repentance from sin. We are to turn away from sin and turn toward God. We are to live a lifestyle which glorifies God. We can know this lifestyle through the revelation of the scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. In this way, we show evidence of the victory of Christ in us as we walk in love. The second is faith in Christ. We are to rely upon Christ for our salvation. It is not what we do, but what Christ has done which saves us. No matter how good one is, we recognize our utter dependence upon the Son of God. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone, we are saved. For those who are disobedient in these things, there is only judgment. None can stand before God with their deeds in hand, because they will find even their greatest deeds are tainted by sin. So any who goes before the judge will find that they are worthy of all condemnation and will face the wrath of God for their sins. For those who are obedient, there is no longer judgment. Instead, we stand before God as his children. Our deeds are not counted against us, but instead we are credited with all righteousness through Christ. For those who are obedient, they will inherit an eternal kingdom, while they will experience the love of God and his peace forevermore. As we leave, let us remember to not allow ourselves to be complacent. Indeed, it is time for us to wake up from the slumber. If we have breath, then it is not time for us to be asleep. Instead, as long as we draw breath, we are to cling evermore to our Savior in this lifetime, being transformed in our lives in all ways by His grace and His mercy. So arise today, and remember that the light has come, and that the darkness shall never overcome it. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You. We thank You for the gospel of Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have illuminated the darkness and that no matter how much the darkness may fight back and no matter how often it looks like the darkness may very well win, we know that through you, because of the faithfulness of your Son, Jesus Christ, the darkness will never overcome the light. And so, Lord, give us faith and help us be obedient to you to remain awake and to rise up against this darkness. For though this is a hard and trying time, we know that with you we will experience victory. Again, Lord, be with us as we continue on this walk of faith. And let us know your presence, here and now and forevermore. In the name of your blessed and only Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn together.